Somebody told me that there's an author who will be in town. I think I've not missed him. His name is Glick. G-L, I think it's G-L-E-I-C-K. I always thought it was Glyke, but I heard him on NPR talking about his new book on time travel and then essentially in the interview giving us a history of our conception of time and how it too has changed since, imagine this, the 19th century. At the end of it, there was H.G. Wells, Time Machine, got made into a movie in the 1950s. Uh, it was a great deal. Interestingly, though, in Wells's book and in his movie, the character only goes into the future. Uh, I guess they were all futurists. Um, and then I heard a report by the screenwriter of Groundhog Day, which uh, I thought was pretty good. And, and then I heard somebody tie it all together with Einstein's theory on how time is relative. Kind of depends on who you are and how fast you're moving. So I'll start this this way. There's something that needs doing. It needs doing now, we say. But let's put it off. Let's do it in an hour. Let's look into the future. That's a good time to do it. But let's let the difference pass by first. Then it will be time. Then it will be now. Putting time in a bottle, holding water in your hands, knowing what your life's meaning is, holding on to what's important. Can any of them be done? Do they all fail because time is fleeting? Or is there a way we can know what our lives are? Is there a way we can hold on to what's important? Can we do both now? How indeed do we find meaning in our lives? Meaning that will be with us now and in the next instant and in all the instants that follow it. The question, I think, is what makes our lives interesting. And perhaps the less we feel we must ask the question, the more interesting our lives are. There is definitely an arrow of time at work here. Triggered, I suppose, by the common sense notion that a cause always precedes its effect. Tragedy exists because things happen, and then there's no undoing them. We must live with our regret, that terrible feeling that comes upon us when we see how much pain could have been so easily avoided. Comedy exists because we laugh at how we have been and quickly see that how we are is a reflection of how so many others have been. There I am, we think, foolish and comic enough to imagine that I've come this way first and then to see that, as with all humans, I'm really walking in others' footprints. When I was in divinity school, there was a grade school down the way, which I learned after a bit was pronounced Peabody. And there was a sign there if you walked onto the playground that said, as you go through your life, make sure where you put your feet because there will be others following you who will be putting their feet in your footprints. I've never figured out who wrote that, and it occurs to me now that I say it, that I could just Google it and we'd be, <laughs> we'd be set. Um, 
Meaning in our lives exists because we construct a story that starts in the past and swirls through this moment and presses on into the future, like the dream sequences that finish so many stories and movies. You can take a look at Nicolas Cage's and Holly Hunter's ending for Raising Arizona as an example. It's the one where, at the end, they see themselves as beloved grandparents. The dream sequences that take our memories of the past and cast them like a dry fly on the end of a long lead into the unknowable future. The better to salve our anxieties over what will come. The better to make sense of the past. The better to have a dream, a personal story, our own private narrative. Not just any story, but an artfully crafted one. So much better, really, than facing a life that is nothing, nothing more than a series of single moments, one after the other, with nothing more to tie them together than time itself. The future is always unknowable. That troubles me as Election Day approaches. Um, <laughs> uh, I think probably all of the same mind on that, but maybe not. Um, but now, with our story, it's not so daunting, this future not so imposing, not so scary, not so perilous. Well, it's good work if you can get it, as they say. Some of us are better at creating useful stories of our pasts and casting them into the future than others. Some of us have memories of pasts that are too heavy, too leaden to cast at all, no matter how crafty, how skillful we are. But even then, it's worth seeing that our memories are selective, that we are obliged to sift through our pasts selectively, because what is important about them is up to us. The decision about what to gather up as a memory and what to forget or discount is one made by the very mind that's holding on to the recollections in the first place. I suppose that's a metaphysical problem. So what's happened in our pasts color how we write our own stories, sometimes keeping us from forming a dream for the future that's enticing or reassuring, but that is instead often frightening and intimidating. So what, you say? What should I make of all this? Well, I'm here to tell you the answer is clear. The answer is found in Maurice Sendak. Imagine that. I guess it's Sendak, isn't it? Maurice Sendak is best known for his children's book, Where the Wild Things Are, first published in 1963 when he was 35 years old. He died in 2012 at the age of 83. In Where the Wild Things Are, it's been made into an opera and a movie, among other art forms. A child called Max plays around his home making mischief in a wolf costume one evening. As punishment, his mother sends him to bed without supper. In his room, a mysterious wild forest and an equally wild sea grow out of his imagination, and Max sails on the sea to the land of the wild things. The wild things are fearsome-looking monsters, but Max proves to be fiercer yet conquering them by staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once. And he is then made the king of all wild things, dancing with the monsters in a wild rumpus. 
However, he soon finds himself lonely and homesick and returns home to his bedroom where he finds his supper waiting for him, still hot. Sendak's story about Max is just the kind of story I've been talking about. It shows kids a story in which the past, one filled with all the monsters that have, it seems, plagued them so unmercifully, so relentlessly, so predictably. It's a story in which the past can become part of a bigger story, one in which the in which there are monsters, to be sure, but a story they can cast into the future and in it, in their very own futures, see themselves not being eaten, see themselves not being a victim, see themselves not being overwhelmed, but instead see themselves being okay, coming home, having a hot meal, and dropping off to a secure, safe sleep. Sendak got famous for looking into the past and showing all of us fearful folk all of us human beings, that drawing pictures of the monsters and naming them works better than trying to pretend that they aren't there. And that more importantly, having a story where the monsters are put in their place really works. Kids, people can face a world like that. And for close to 50 years, they have thanked Sendak for giving it to them over and over and over. Now I know what you're thinking. This is just play, is it not? What does it mean to me today? I'm dealing with something here more real than a monster. Really? More real than a monster? Do you remember how you felt long ago in your bed upstairs, the only person sleeping on the second floor when it was dark, you were having a hard time getting to sleep? Did you think there might be a monster under the bed? I have the sense that there's a pop song where there's a monster under my bed is one of the lines, but I can hear it, but I'm not about to sing it. (laughs) Uh, I remember feeling so sure that there was a monster under there that I was unwilling to have my arms extend beyond the bed on the top of the covers for fear that would give the monster too good a shot at me. It seemed real to me. Sendak tells us that our present can turn our past into a more welcoming future. The trick, of course, is to find the right present, and there are many bad examples. In classic cautionary tales, a child misbehaves and is severely punished. The adult friends and relatives utter warnings, I guess to just cover their legal liability, But they don't seem to do anything to protect the child or seem very upset by what happens. Bad behavior leads to awful retribution. I think these tales might be left over from an era in which it was thought that young children were just simply very small, defective adults. Something I I think we've happily left behind. Bad behavior then leads to awful retribution. In one early example from 1907, the kid, James, runs away from his nurse and is eaten by a lion. His mother merely remarks afterward, well, it gives me no surprise, he would not do as he was told, to James's miserable end, and always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. 
This is a joke, of course, not a very pleasant one. Not for a kid. I suppose it's a way of teaching your child to, what, hold on to the nurse? Sendak turns it around. Now we're talking. In Sendak's Pierre, a cautionary tale, written in the early 1960s, Sendak shows us how it should be done. His Pierre suffers from, look, from what looks like bad temper and sulkiness, but could be the kind of apathy that is one of the symptoms of depression. He rejects his parents' love. This is Sendak now. One day, his mother said, when Pierre climbed out of bed, Good morning, darling boy. You are my only joy. Pierre said, I don't care. Pierre responds with similar indifference to offers of cream of wheat with syrup and a trip to town. No matter what anyone says, he replies, I don't care. After his parents leave, a hungry lion appears. This, this too is Sendak now. The hungry lion. He looked Pierre right in the eye and asked him if he'd like to die. Pierre said, I don't care. Is that all you have to say? I don't care. Then I'll eat you if I may. I don't care. So the lion ate Pierre. Have you ever felt like that? Go ahead and eat me, lion. When his parents get home, they find the lion sick in Pierre's bed. Unlike James's parents, however, they don't accept this well lying down. Instead, they pulled the lion by the hair. They hit him with the folding chair. His mother asked, where's Pierre? The lion answered, I don't care. His father said, Pierre's in there. <laughs> Unlike earlier cautionary tales, Pierre has a happy ending. The parents take the lion to a doctor who turns him upside down and Pierre falls out. He rubbed his eyes and scratched his head and laughed because he wasn't dead. This, I should add, is just another aside that this is the point of a big chunk of Walker Percy's book, Lost in the Cosmos. If you've not read that, I recommend it to you highly. It seemed almost mandatory reading material when I was in divinity school. It certainly wasn't assigned by a professor, but it was <clears throat> something that that uh, the students thought was worth looking at. So he laughs because he wasn't dead. Wow, we might think, is this how things can turn out for me? Even the lion looks happier. He goes home with Pierre and his family and stays on as a weekend guest. <laughs> Sendak makes sure to show us that disruptive impulses ought not to be denied but rather accepted and incorporated into real life within limits. After all, the lion visits but does not join the family. Pierre is not punished, but saved. As Sendak puts it at the end, the moral of Pierre is care, in all caps. This is precisely his point. Caring, loving is what we do in this moment, in this now that is here only now, if that and that will then become part of our past. 
it will still be there just as people who have died are still there. For they and the caring they shared remain in our memories. The beauty of caring, and this too is Sendak's point, is that it remains in the memories of both the caregiver and the care receiver, the lover and the loved. It's like double dipping in the very best possible way. It's like a deduction and a credit all at once. It's like caring becomes the beautiful intersection of two personal stories, inscribed in two memories, touching two lives, forming two futures. And finally, we can see that Sendak tells us that the personal stories, the dreams we have for our own futures, help us to make happen what will indeed happen. And they help us to prepare to be there, to do what is exciting or charming or useful when our futures happen precisely because we've authored our own stories. We've, we have authored the future. There is a long history of people, let me close this way, there is a long history of people coming to the conclusion that life is play. Serious play, sometimes for sure, but play nonetheless. Children's play is the kind of activity that always presupposes a competition, always pictures or imagines someone on the other side. A real playmate, perhaps, to tug back and forth, to give the play some tension. But whether real or imaginary, there's always another presence, someone to care for. It is, I suppose, what congregations are for. As Sendak told us, the moral of Pierre is care. Again, he capitalized care, and he put an exclamation point after the last E. Let me finish by saying that what we have in this moment, what we can do with it, is to care for someone while we're in it. And doing that is easier if you have a story about how your life has been and how it will be so that the caring moments actually happen. You do need to go visit somebody if they're not right at hand. The older I get, the more I see that happen. We can each author our own story. Our memories do not, after all, presage our future like videos already made. We're not trapped by our pasts, but rather we have a real-life permission to interpret our memories and to incorporate them into a story that we like. So let's leave behind those old cautionary tales where people are punished, and there's a don't bother me about that. And while you're writing your story, throw in some standards for living, for life is play and play demands them. Our stories, our lives can become like songs we've written and our caring, they can become our sacraments, both for ourselves and for our congregation. Amen.